on the Empire Podcast this week, two directors of Lethal Cunning drop by to talk about their amnesia-themed heroes. Andrew Stanton and Paul Greengrass are here, yes, to talk about Finding Dory and Jason Bourne, respectively. Plus, there's the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that didn't get to go to Comic-Con this year to see Captain Marvel take the stage for the first time, but is definitely not bitter about that. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Yes, your regular host, Chris Hewitt, has been packed off to the other side of the world this week by a heartless, heedless acting features editor with no regard for his pod hosting schedule. And now it's mine. All mine. Uh, so, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning, both of whom, in a weird coincidence, have their own experience with forgetfulness. Uh, first up is our art house guru, a man who realised as he got to the end of Andy Warhol's empire that he'd forgotten a bit at the beginning, so he had to rewind and watch it all again. It's Phil Dissemblin. Hello. How are you doing? Very well indeed, thanks. How about you? Um, yeah, I mean, good. Yeah, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, thank you. Are you going to bring Chris back one day? Well, I mean, we'll see. I, th- I feel like he, he's producing a lot out there. He's really being helpful and productive in a way that he never is here. Oh, I'm kidding. So uh, so if he ends up there for weeks, months, years at a time, so be it. This set visit on Devil's Island <laughs> that you sent him on. I don't believe he's on a set visit. I think this is a coup. <laughs> what? No. Well, you know how when they have coups, they always take over the radio station first. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays podcasts. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Mm-mm. Everything is fine. Everything is normal. Mm-hmm. Please continue about your business. What's that? Someone <laughs> in the box under the desk? It's very confusing. No, no, just some kind of misunderstanding. Anyway, uh, you heard him already, but we also have a second member of the team here. It's our rage-fueled webmaster who once forgot his own name after an epic Warcraft session. That's of the game, not the film. It's James Dyer. It was uh, Silana, the night elf rogue, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> That's your real honest in your heart name, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It can I just Twitter. sorry, can I just sorry. jump in there? Please do. Are you missing Dan? Enormously. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. you and Dan used to used to have these conversations in the morning, which obviously you won't be able to have anymore, unless you make them as sort of conference call. We had some spectacular conversations, did me and Dan. Uh, yes, uh, if anyone doesn't know this, we used to both... I got Dan into World of Warcraft, actually, in 2005, and we used to come in and discuss our exploits. And Helen oh. used to sit there and listen to us bang on about, you know, our missions to Black Rock Depths and how we'd just, you know, gone through the dead mines. And The Scarlet Monastery chat lasted yes. for weeks. Uh, you got ganked in the atrium waiting to go into there. It was I mean, terrible. Oh. The, the humanity or or elf anity. Yeah. So I, I miss I miss Dan. But the, the, this has been an interesting moment for me because um, I have obviously been promoted to the geekiest person in the Empire office, where I had for many years I think lived in Dan's shadow. Yes. Um, because you know there are many many as you would probably imagine at Empire uh, geeks at Empire, but it's all to do with how many different coloured anoraks you wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I wear. TV anorak, film anorak, game anorak, a variety of different anoraks. Uh, but Dan held the parker of role-playing. Dan is a man who D&Ds and does all sorts of other things, and it's very hard to compete with geekery on that level. That's mm. the premiership of in-work geekdom. And I always felt a little bit outclassed. And now that Dan has gone, um, I-, I feel I've assumed the mantle. You're the yeah. best we've got. <laughs> You're not much. I'm the hero you You're deserve. <laughs> Yes, I would like to clarify that I, I have one less anorak than you easily because I don't game at yeah, all. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, so, yeah, 
It, 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 you are the worst now. I mean, but, no, the best. I but, mean, the but equally, you were a member of Babsock, and I have never joined not... an organised geek society, which is again, that's a level. I've explained that's this pretty before. high. <laughs> I've explained this before. I went to university. Season three was on. It was a very exciting season, and in those days, we didn't all have TV on our computers, did we? Mm-hmm. No, we had to join a like-minded fellowship in order to watch the episodes as they came out. That's all. You know what's going to happen? That we'll get a replacement for Dan. And it'll be someone who LARPs. Oh, I mean, and that will just be. I mean, we're all just done at that point. Does I, anyone, for anyone who doesn't know, LARP is live action role playing. Uh, and at university, we used to witness these strange creatures on the weekend where if you ever went onto campus on a Saturday or a Sunday, you would see grown ish men and women dressed as elves and orcs slapping each other with cardboard swords. Mm. Uh, and that's great. That's so the LARPing. call will come and they'll be like, Dan's replacement is in the lobby. Can you go and get him? By the way, he's on horseback. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be much like that. Oh, that'd be awesome, though, if you like that bit in True Lies. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Except he's in full Civil War regalia. The <laughs> thing with LARPing is, even among us, there's that slightly sneery, oh God, who would do that thing? But the secret is, and write down, and I challenge anyone to dispute this, every single one of you want to do it. You're just too embarrassed. I I think that's not untrue. If you've seen the film Role Models, it actually looks like a giggle. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look it. like a cool giggle, but it does look like a giggle. Yeah. I, I don't think we'll get a LARPer. I really don't. I would be surprised. Let's However, LARP in the next podcast. If you have applied for the features editor job and you are a LARPer, <laughs> do let us know and we will put in a good word for you. Honestly. And organise the stables. Yeah. <laughs> And you really do need to turn up for the interviewing costume. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. Okay, anyway, we should probably take a question. And this week's question comes from Twitter, the greatest source of questions in the galaxy. It comes from Dave, at 33 years a Dave. Congratulations, Dave. Uh, And the question is, most interesting face in movies? Not necessarily the best looking, just the most interesting face to look at. This is a really, really good question. Isn't it? Unusually good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's kind of slagging off everybody else. Let's not do that. No, but it is. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's actually got me thinking this. Um, and and there's I think there's lots of people in Hollywood's faces that you just want to grab and massage and just you know, <laughs> perhaps that's just me. I don't there, know. There are people that you can watch for hours, almost just doing nothing and be entertained because they have just interesting faces. And I I feel like Tom Hanks is one and Jack Lemmon is one. And I don't know if they're quite the answer to this question because I think a lot of that is just the personality coming out from behind the face. But they, I mean, I could genuinely just watch them cook dinner or something and be quite content. I just find them fascinating. There's three types of faces. There are. Oh, this is, is a statement I can't. Three remotely, colours face. I can't remotely back up with facts. Okay. But let's say there's there's the face. There's the the the, the sort of archetypal Hollywood movie star face, right, which the is aesthetically face. beautiful. Right. Let's call him Chris Pine. And, and then let's say you've got. Let's call him Chris Pine. Um, <laughs> and then you've got the um, the everyman face, yes. which I think is where Tom Hanks mm. is. Yes. And Jimmy Stewart. Yes. And Ben Gazzara. Although and Jimmy like Stewart that. is extraordinarily handsome as well. Let's not overlook that. But yes. It doesn't preclude you from having an, an ear in sure. category A. But category B is is the kind of the everyman, the kind of American sort of canvas that you yeah. can paint stories onto. As the sort were, of Gene Hackman category. No, I think Gene Hackman's more in category three, Ooh, yeah. okay. which is the quirky, slightly off-centre, slightly weird, in a way, face, lived in. Um, Bill Murray. 
is Bill Category Murray. Three yes. for me. He is. And all of the people I thought of pretty much fit into that category okay. for different reasons. Not because they're unattractive, just because they have a certain off-centeredness, okay. which lends a film immediately something a bit a bit unsettling. A bit different. I'm not, I don't want to say Forrest Whitaker's face is unsettling, but Forrest Whitaker's face in a, in a certain situation, in a certain Idi movie. Idi or something. In yeah, as Idi Amin, for yeah. instance. The Usual Suspects is a movie rammed full of yeah. Category 3s, I think. Mm. Um, it's Category 3 to <laughs> the It's a max. Category 3 storm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a Category 3 floating vapour of slightly <laughs> weird faces, and it's perfect for the story. Um Peter Lorre. Oh, don't even. I really do the wish voice. Chris could just phone really him for that. He's part. not here. Um, is uh, is category three for me, and Donald Sutherland as well. Oh, yeah. Yes. Has a face yeah. like a very tall piece of furniture. This, <laughs> I, I think you've nailed it. This, this is, these are absolutely. Do you think these are categories? Yeah, I think this is a thing. I think categories. I mean, mainly, I would say categories. You tend to be character actors, don't you? Because if you're a leading man, you would generally become a leading man because you fall into categories A or B. I think categories get lucky. When they're sort of leads, the or only very exception funny. is maybe like the seventies, where category yes. threes were regularly leading men. More uh, the 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 rise of the category A, I think, is much more of a modern phenomenon because we all become so wildly superficial. But I think the underlying problem with this, and sorry to take the funny out of this conversation, is that we're always talking about men. Yes, and I think the reason for that is is that category A females seem to be the ones that Hollywood seeks out and it's less usual to find category B or C female faces in movies. Yes. Let's not say there aren't any. No, and I think but I think there have been more in the past. Like Betty Davis, for example, mm. is not strictly always beautiful um, but she was interesting enough that it didn't matter mm. there are exceptions uh, there are Meryl Streep's of the world that kind of person yes. uh, Judy Dench's Maggie Smith although actually both of them were stunners in mm. their youth Maggie Gyllenhaal again quite interesting looking I'm not sure what she's a category C but I remember reading on the internet her being described as a, as a sad cartoon turtle once and that's kind of stuck with me Yes, <laughs> it seems very harsh for a woman who is actually, I think, beautiful. But uh, okay, um, I've got William H Macy down as a sort of gone to seed koala, <laughs> <laughs> someone you might find in a sort of a, a diner knocking back his forty seventh um, eucalyptus flavored bourbon. And um, you know, they are. You're right. This is this is um, lacking diversity. Yeah, well, because Hollywood. Does. The movies to this point yeah. is a bit lacking in diversity. So a lot of these are white males. Well, um, but let me raise you Danny Trejo. Let me raise you Steve uh, Buscemi, as they say in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Let's one. never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Buscemi, obviously I know how to say his name. Um, but uh, but the, the pronunciation Buscemi just made me laugh. But he's got a great face. And it <laughs> is, you know, it is not a traditionally, I, I, I hope he won't be offended if I say it is not a traditionally handsome face in the same way as we've established Chris Pine. Mm. Um, but it is an interesting face and, and a film is made better by its presence. Yes. Generally speaking. Um, some reference needs to be made to the fact that cinema obviously changed from the silent era to the talkie era. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Garbo yeah. speaks... Garbo she talks. does. Garbo's. Garbo. Um, is the sort of classic kind of, you know, the, the, someone that in, in the pre-talkie era, you, the face was your only kind of tool of expression. Yeah. So you had these incredible, incredibly kind of um, limbic sort mm. of face, faces. Uh, people like um, Buster Keaton, obviously. 
old Stoneface himself. Yeah, Harold Lloyd. Um, and... Was less expressive, obviously. Well, yeah, Harold Lloyd more so, I guess. And then people like Lon Chaney, the man who had... Oh, yeah. Man of, man of a thousand, a thousand faces. faces. That's, that's, that's more than average people. Think of the decisions before you, when you get up in the morning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was actually... Um, uh, when I was in Glastonbury recently, I was obviously working in the Pilton Palais film tent there. Hi to all of you. Um, and we had a couple of... Uh, of live performances with silent movies Um, so we had a great 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 band called Wurlitza who I think are based in Devon hi to them um, who would accompany these these silent movies give them an all new soundtrack Um, and we I saw Piccadilly with uh, Anna Mae Wong who was one of the great Chinese silent era leads or Chinese American silent era leads and again incredible face just incredibly incredibly expressive you could not look away when she was on screen but in fairness she's very much a category A yes let's not you know where where do you class I mean there's a subcategory here somewhere and that's the as you say the very expressive I'm thinking you know your Jack Blacks your Jim Carrey's you know in many ways your early Eddie Murphy's that incredibly expressive contorting this should be CGI but isn't type thing yeah I guess that is a subcategory of category C maybe although Jim Carrey's a handsome guy he'd be a category B so maybe it's a subcategory of all three categories maybe it is Mm. if you're not feeling like you're in one of these categories please do contact us (laughs) And we will shoehorn you into one of them. Um, Can I mention Klaus Kinski as the resident art house weirdo? Can you? Um, You're right about the 70s, though, because that was an era full of interesting faces. And they would get cast in leading roles. Um, and not just by Werner Herzog, <laughs> because Gene Hackman was a leading man back then. Yeah, and, Donald know, Sutherland was a leading Donald man Donald Sutherland was, 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 you know, getting films made back then. Um, Lee Marvin... Mm. is someone I wanted to mention. And Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune in Hell in the Pacific, if you haven't seen it, a John Borman movie, which was obviously a prequel for Enemy Mine. Yeah, well, pre-cur- yeah. yeah, not quite a prequel. prequel. No? Prequel? You're saying it's not a preboot? It's a direct <laughs> prequel <laughs> to Enemy Mine, yes. <laughs> of Enemy Mine. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, it's well worth a look, because both of those have... I mean, Mifune especially, oh, in yeah. Kurosawa films. Incredible is, face. Is, is, uh, is sort of this Easter Island-like kind of monolith, almost. <laughs> it's very, very cool. But yeah, I mean, we just reduced everyone into three categories, so I think we could pretty, pretty much take the rest of the day off. And we have to, we, we cannot possibly move on without mentioning Tommy Lee Jones, the original mm-hmm. face. And for me, the ultimate category C is Ron Perlman. Yes. Love a yes. bit of Ron Perlman. Ron per- I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is, again, an extraordinarily handsome man, actually. If you've seen pictures but, of young Tommy Lee Jones, it's, there's a little bit here of you start out super handsome and, and then you, you age yeah. into a category but two or a category three. He is a man three. for which the word craggy was designed. That's true. I'm just saying. Some, he was fresh face, though. If, if you, you're listening, Google Tommy, young Tommy Lee Jones, and I'm just saying you'll be impressed. Or better yet, watch Rolling Thunder. Well, that also works. Or or Coal Miner's Daughter. Or The Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah. You're right. But now somebody, I mean, he's going to probably resurface later in this very podcast. He will. Spoiler. Spoiler. Let's um, not get ahead of Someone has described his face nowadays as looking like a sort of exploding asteroid. <laughs> 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 Which I guess isn't a compliment, but, you know, again, you know, more and more interesting. Yeah, Sam Neill, actually. I'm going to give a shout out as well. Sam Kirk Neill. Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Lee what Van Cleef. The James West Cagney. Jose Mourinho. James Cagney. Yes, Jimmy Cagney. Well, Good question. All right. Well, Jeff Daniels, the original hangdog face. Yeah, again, handsome when he was younger. Not, not still handsome, handsome as, now. Still handsome now. Not quite as handsome as Jeff Bridges, but then who is? Anyway, um, we should probably... I think we've answered that. Can, we, answered can we just dedicate the whole podcast to this question? <laughs> we'll make it a face special. Crispin Glover. 
Crispin Glover. Crispin, no, Crispin Glover, I actually had written down. He's a he's he's definitely a good one. Yeah. He has a face that looks like it could cut glass. It could, yeah. And I, a, actually, another shout out to Saffron Burrow's cheekbones. I think she has <laughs> very interesting facial architecture. It looks like you could climb it. Mm, Johnny, I, I think that uh, Johnny Depp in between roles actually uses his cheekbones. I've heard to etch glass. He sells rather <laughs> lovely crystal wear. Um, back home in France, there's a little known fact for you. Um, okay, we should probably move on. Uh, it's time for our first guest because we have two, count them, two this week. Um, and they're both directors of extraordinary talent. This guy has made a couple of the best animated films of all time, uh, an underrated live-action sci-fi film as well, and, uh, and he suspects me of stalking him. Uh, not wrongly, as it happens. Uh, he has the fishy sequel Finding Dory out this week, which obviously returns to the world of his earlier film Finding Nemo. And we sent Chris along to talk to Andrew Stanton, you know, because of the restraining order. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Andrew Stanton and Lindsay Collins. How are you both? Good. Good. Thank you. Happy Excellent. to be here. Excellent. Uh, how long have you been in London now? Is this day three? Day four. Day four. Day yeah. four. Day four. Okay. Magical Hold- day four. Yeah. Holding up all right? Holding yeah. up okay. Yeah. What's the one question you've been asked most about this movie? Why does it? Why did it take 13 yeah, why years? Why did we wait 13 <laughs> years? Why did you wait 13 years? <laughs> which, which makes it sound like we were... Cru- we were just sitting there waiting. Being cruel. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was a grand plan. There was a yeah. grand plan. Yeah. It implies yeah. a grand plan, yeah. yes. But, uh, but of course, there wasn't, Andrew. I mean, this kind of just fell into your lap in this strange way. Finding Dory, didn't No, the it? last thing I thought I'd ever do was a sequel. I really, I really did. I mean, it was, I don't make, I mean, the irony is Carter's the only thing I've ever made where I had intentions of continuing on. Yeah. And, uh, but Nemo and Wally, they were, they were self sufficient entities. I think they were, like, in my mind, they were done. But we had always said, not just to ourselves, but to the public and also to Disney when we were sold to them in 06, that, like, if we do sequels, mm-hmm. and we most likely will, they have to be, uh, sort of stories that are either endorsed or actually done by the original filmmakers. Yeah. So we wanted to, uh, because we learned that lesson with Toy Story 2, people forget that it was our third film yeah. back in 1999. And we learned the hard way, the right way and the wrong way, the, the right motivations and the wrong motivations to make a sequel. Mm. So we kind of made a vow from then on, like to, to be, you know, narratively honest about if we're going to, if we, if we're going to continue on with a, a story or a world that we've created. Mm. And, 13 years is the perfect example. Like, you know, I, I didn't watch Nemo for years um, yeah. and about seven years after that came out. And we had to watch a 3D uh, release of it in a theater in 2011. So that's about five years ago. Yeah. And I saw it for the first time objectively like an audience member. And I walked out going, Dory's completely unfinished. She doesn't know where she's from. She could lose Marlon and Nemo. She's mm-hmm. got abandonment issues still. She she looks at her her short-term memory loss as something to apologize for. Yeah. It was just, it was like more ingredients than I usually have for a main character of any other story. And I, then I just couldn't drop it. You were just it. ashamed of yourself as a I writer. was ashamed of myself, yeah. <laughs> so, how, so how dare I leave oh that gosh, open-ended like that? Shame. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really isn't, wasn't a desire, it wasn't out of any... I mean, 13 years later, it wasn't out of some pressure, out of success or anything. Yeah, it, was, it was just, she deserved closure. And going back, I mean, looking at uh, Finding Nemo originally, how detailed are the backstories for the animated characters? It's Did random. You, yeah. It's yeah. random. I mean, and the irony on this one is, I'll let you run with this one, Lindsay, <laughs> but like the, the irony on this one is that I had a backstory on Dory, but I had not told anybody it, even on the first one. Yeah, I think we'd been through a couple of um, screenings of it, and you know, people were still struggling with kind of understanding why Dory was driven to find her parents and what, what was kind of behind all of it. 
And Andrew, kind of in this moment of frustration in the story room, was like, well, she's been by herself wandering the ocean for years. <laughs> and all of us kind of were like, what? And Andrew was like, oh, did I forget to tell you guys that? It was always something he had in the back of his head, and we were like, well, that would have been nice to know about a year ago. So, um, so yeah, so that was always something kind of that was in the back of your head writing her, and um, yeah. so that when she ran into Marlon on the first film, that it, it was, you kind of felt that palpable kind of sense of kind of relief that, that she had found somebody that she could help and that would stick with her. So once kind of Andrew said that, we all kind of realized that needed to be in the movie um, yeah. and that the audience needed to know that her and op- see that. Her, yeah, her, her optimism and her, her comedic chops and her attitude of, 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 of just being so joyful is, is so uh, eclipses so much that it, it's people, people's first, second, third instinct is not that she's a tragic character, but she is. Yeah. I mean, all yeah, that absolutely. All, all that caretaking, all that helpfulness is armor. It's her way of surviving. It's her way of hoping that maybe you won't ditch her because she just feels like she's always been alone. And so that's that's always been under the hood. It's a wonderfully, she's a wonderfully complex character. And was the idea with this movie always to surround her with uh, other uh, fish and other animals that are equally damaged in some way? I don't think we looked at it that way at first, but it, it, over it time, evolved into yeah. that. Yeah, I yeah. think part of it was because, you know, something about this. I think one of the things about Dory that people like is that she kind of never there, there's a there's a sense of kind of, uh, of non-judgment with her. She kind mm. of just takes things at face value and moves on. And, you know, that was obviously illustrated with Nemo. She never really talks about Nemo's little fin at all. Mm. And um, and we liked the fact that she was always a the fact that she was always apologizing for her own kind of flaw. Yeah. We liked kind of showing the, the, the counter to that and the way she dealt with everybody else. And um, so that when she sees Destiny, who, you know, is a whale shark that suffered, it can't really see very well. Um, you know, Dory's first response is, well, I think you swim beautifully. Yes. And, um, you know, so she, and then she just moves on. And yeah. so she kind of doesn't allow people to define themselves by their flaws. She sees right past it. And um, and the only person she kind of defines by their flaws is herself. Yeah. And so that was, since that was kind of the overall overarching goal was to get her to a place where she no longer felt she needed to apologize for that. It was nice to have these characters around her that that kind of illustrated her her grace with yeah. them. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. You mentioned there, obviously, uh, Toy Story 2 being the third mm-hmm. film in Pixar's history. And... You know, when people say Pixar hasn't really been in the sequels business, you're absolutely right. Three films in, <laughs> yeah. there's Toy Mem- Story 2. Memories too. are short. <laughs> absolutely. And that, that film, of course, was famously almost completely reconstructed from the ground up, very, very yes. close in to... In the last eight months, yeah. Yeah. after four years, yeah. yeah. So is that a lesson that you learn? I mean, because, yeah. you know, going through into, into Finding Dory, how you approach a sequel and how you approach... Yeah, because, you know, we, we've been very vocal. We approached that one uh, we, at the time, DVDs, sequels going straight to DVD were very popular. Yeah, it was and, a thing. And, and it was a knee-jerk thing <laughs> from Disney. It was like, hey, why don't, you know, Toy Story is popular, let's just make a... Uh, while you're busy making Bugs Life, have another group go off and make a straight-to-DVD sequel. Mm. And and so it felt a little icky, but we're like, oh, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. Business. We're all learning the whole thing business-wise. And, and, and so we, we kind of said, yeah. And then once we saw it was just not getting any better and it was running out of time, we realized we, we couldn't live with ourselves artistically by putting out something that we felt was inferior. And we said we'd rather go down with a ship trying to like make something much, much better. And so we just learned our lesson after that, like never get into bed with making a film unless we really narratively uh, and creatively feel like there's gold something there. Something to say, mm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so this one, I mean, I think if anything, um, you know, 
I mean, maybe there was a minute where we were like, oh, this will be easier. Uh, and I honestly mean, it, I think it was a minute. Yeah. Um, and, and then like minute two, we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Our main character has short-term memory loss. This is not going to be easy. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, in some ways, because um, because everybody knows these characters, I mean, in some ways you have a lot of, you, you have a lot of restrictions kind of going into a sequel in the sense that you, you kind of, I guess that's a win in some ways. You know some of these characters and what who they yeah. are and what they're about. But the other side of it is that you, you have to you have to be true to those characters. I mean, there's you can't just forget the rules or the, forget the, the, the kind of qualities or traits you've given these characters. Yeah. And you have to kind of be... You have to be consistent with that, and so yeah. Um, it's it's. I've seen this on every film, like, but particularly on sequels. It's like, you know, so much of story development is is figuring out who the characters are. Um, so you start, you have to start with plot because it's just it's just the way people's brains are. It's like like a little kid. Like once upon a time, there was this, and there was that, and then this happened, and you just do that. And but it's really just kind of like a, a format or sort of a. Uh, starting place starting place just to like sort of road test I guess like road test what your characters are and you're not going to know and you you just have to do it again and again until you figure out who these characters are and then once you figure them out and usually it takes about two years then you redo all of your plot to support this <laughs> yeah. character you've discovered. So you go into this assumption with a sequel that like, oh, I figured out these characters, right. so it should be easier now. But the truth is, you're, you're not going to go back and, and retell this character you've discovered. It's, if you put them on the same journey, then exactly. yeah, it would probably be pretty but easy. It, but it's like saying, like, i got to find something new about my parents or my, my, my siblings that I don't know. So I've got to sit in a car trip with them much longer and be stuck yeah. with them and find out things I just and ask questions I would have never asked had I not spent more time with them and once you get to new stuff it's an original again you're just back to square one with just like new stuff you've got to figure out and how to shape it and how to develop it so i'd say you know two-thirds of your time spent making a sequel feels exact it is making an original you know absolutely you're not repeating yourself at least if if you're trying for something that's fresh so you you knew that uh Dory was coming back. That, mm-hmm. That's that's a given. Yes. Uh, was she a tough negotiator for the sequel? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. funny. Uh, Dory is a very tough. No, she um, <laughs> Ellen only, be, only because she forgets what you. She offer. forgets. You're like, no, we talked about this. She's like, no, what? You said yes you to what? points. What did yeah. I say? Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, the good thing is, is that Ellen had uh, made this kind of running joke. Yes. Uh, on her show about the fact that we had not done a sequel to yeah. Finding Nemo, and um, and and it was very funny, and and literally she didn't let it go. I mean, I think for 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 ten whatever, years. no, yeah, ten years, um, and <laughs> um, and it just kind of kept getting funnier every time, and so. Um, we felt relatively confident that uh, when when Andrew decided that he he had this idea that he wanted to do, that if we called Ellen, um, she might give us a bit of grief for taking so long, but that she'd probably <laughs> say yes. And sure enough, uh, she did say yes. So it was not it was not that tough of a negotiation. She was very surprised that it was going to be called Finding Dory. She didn't realize it was going to be uh, centered around her character. Okay, so she was yeah. very pleased about that. So you, you didn't want to like uh, freak her out by having the conversation going. We are making Finding Dory, but the bad news is you're we're not going to have to recast. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No. Uh, no, she uh, she was great. And then you know the nice thing also about having uh, Ellen DeGeneres in your in your film is that when you're when you're casting the supporting cast, um, usually it's kind of hard for animation because what you're 
what you have to do is kind of fake uh, these kind of fake conversations by cutting different mm. parts of different films to listen to actors against one another for casting. For casting, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the editors spent a lot of time trying to kind of mock up a fake conversation using bits from other films. But when oh. it's Ellen, uh, it turns out she's interviewed most people on the planet, so <laughs> we could kind of be like, what does she sound like with Diane Keaton? And you could kind of just look up on Ellen Tube, and sure enough, there was four or five scenes, you know, shows of her with uh, Diane Keaton. So it, it made our jobs a little bit easier in terms of knowing kind of how she sounded against various That's people. Amazing. Yeah. So sort of six degrees of Ellen DeGeneres yeah, exactly. would be much easier than Kevin Exactly, Bacon. yes. Yeah. With Ellen it DeGeneres, every, everybody's one degree. It's uh, yeah, she's like, do you want me to call them right now? You're like, uh, right now? No. I mean, we, yeah, sure. Like, you know, Got her phone, people her phone it must be pretty impressive. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to be at a presentation you did the other day, Andrew, about how the you you formed this movie over the period of, what, three, four years? Yeah. And during that, you were, you, you said something that uh, I thought was very interesting. That, uh, obviously, you guys do the temp voices yeah. for Pixar movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the voice of Woody. Is that yeah. It? Well, it's all out of necessity. I mean, uh, we, we don't... We're, we're up in San Francisco. It's, it's, it's about three to 400 miles north of Los Angeles and all the way across the country from New York where most of your actors are. Mm. So you don't have the luxury of uh, being able to record them every time you rewrite and we're rewriting daily <laughs> so how do we keep up with the new lines because we are always mocking our films up with storyboards and audio and watching it like a movie sure. as we rewrite the script and that goes on for years so you need a way to like just quickly you know have some basically stand-in actors and we were very small so we just you know Pete Doctor has always been Buzz I've always been Woody and it was because we were that small at the time and we just kept up I think all all animation studios do this. Uh-huh. Um, and then what happens is sometimes because of bit roles that you're doing, you find that somebody's pretty funny just for yeah. for doing that standard voice. And, yeah. you've, and, um, and sometimes you actually try recasting with professional actors and it, it loses some of its voodoo. So yeah. that's where you end up with things like me doing Crush or Brad Bird being E. It was never the intention. But we just it, there was some voodoo that was just, that was found, you know. Yeah. So Bob Peterson's the king of. Oh yeah. Doing voices that end up sticking in the movies because yeah. he's so funny. Yeah. And Lindsay, you're Dory, is that right? Uh, I am. The, yeah, I'm the temp voice of Dory. So and she and was I, on both films. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's. Uh, I I'm a bit typecast as being um, <laughs> a, a bit of an airhead. I was also the temp voice for Barbie on uh, Toy Story <laughs> Two and Mia. Uh, I'm actually the actual voice in Mia for Cars, but uh, um, but yeah. So I think um, it's also very. I um, they know they can get me um, <laughs> when they need me because it's like you know it's in my best interest to get that temp voice recorded and into the reels. So they're like, get Lindsay over here, she'll do it. What's amazing is I found out on Dory I could actually imitate Albert Brooks pretty well. Yeah, and I never did that on the first film, and it's it's it, you would have never thought that, but that's funny. Oh wow, okay. Well, yeah. you know what I'm going to do ask now? Uh, can you do Albert Brooks now? Uh, <laughs> well, he's uh he 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 thinks a little like this, and he he kind of, it, it takes a while to. Should I be doing a podcast? I'm not sure. <laughs> it, it, does it make sense to do a podcast right now? I mean, now? I, I, no. I guess. All right, we'll do a podcast. You know, and and uh, and then I'm. And I'm always doing Ratzenberger, because so. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Boston. So, and Ratzenberger, you go hi, and then you go low, and right in the middle of the sentence. So it's like, <laughs> I'm a little teapot, short and stout. This is my handle, and this is my spout. 
Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there it is, you know? ladies and gentlemen. There we go. There we go. Yes. So I've, I've, I've always and yeah, other people can do them too. Yeah, so, yeah I'm not the only one at, at Pixar that does him. Never tried a Ratzenberger. No, that's that's, really? a, that's a new one. No. Uh, Lindsay, I know you're not performing monkeys, but no. did you do Ellen? And how, how do you? Do I it? don't. You know what? No. It's actually I. It, Ellen is impossible to imitate, and yeah, the reason yeah. is is because it's she's all in the delivery. Yeah. Um, like the way she chooses to deliver, kind of the most mundane line is is always so charming and unique um that i just kind of try to read the lines pretty straight and i mean more, more savvy than you remember like, yeah she's got a street smart to yeah that you, you you underestimate yeah. yeah so i mean you know she she kind of stops and starts in the middle of sentences and comes i mean you know well i mean <laughs> if you want to she kind of throws life lines away and stuff i mean if you want to do that but I can never do an imitation of her. In fact, people have called me to do like a toy because, you know, they, sometimes she doesn't want to do it. And so they sure. call me and they're like, you sound nothing like her. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes, I know. I don't know why we're having this phone conversation. But the reason Lindsay always works for Scratch is because she's a good actress and, she, yeah. and she's good at timing and instinct about where to go slow, where to go fast, where to go drama. So it's not about sounding like Ellen. It's just about delivering a sincere execution of the line. It's Absolutely. the same for anybody doing Scratch. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, so you knew Dory was going to be back. That was a given. Um, one of the one of the sort of traps that sequels fall into so often, and it's happened quite a lot this summer already, is that the sort of the gang's all here kind mm-hmm. of vibe. When we crowbar characters from the first movie in, and yeah. Finding Dory does not do that. Do, no. you, do you have how organic was that process? How did you whittle down decide which characters were? It, it, it wasn't starting with everybody and whittled down. It was the opposite. Yeah, it's, you had to kind it, of prove to yeah, get back in. You, you know? had to earn your you, you had to your earn way your way in. in. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know? and to be honest. Um, that's treat in my mind. That's a very good example of treating a sequel like an original. Like, look at what's forget that there was ever in another movie. This is this is this one character. This is their one issue. This is their story. Well, who do we need to help tell it? Who do we need to help mm-hmm. move it along narratively? And only think for that reason. It gives you the courage to not care if there's like a thousand people online voting that they want somebody else to be in the movie. Like, it, it just doesn't matter. It's like mm. if 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 it makes the movie work by having these characters in or out then then everybody then then everybody will be satisfied because the movie will be good the story will be good right yeah, yeah. the it's germans really, really wanted the sharks in they really did they really made a strong case <laughs> but we were like you know what no there's just not a place for the sharks yeah. <laughs> so i mean you you spend out of four years with any of these films throwing away more than you keep mm. and you just get used to that it's a means to getting to the right answer mm. so in, in live action, uh, people's uh, first cuts and assembly cuts can often be three, four hours. How does it work in animation? I mean, you know, cause it seems to be much tighter. Your process seems to be much more ruthless. Well, and- I mean, it, it, in, in the sense that we're always putting on the play, basically we do story reels, which is like you storyboard it, mm-hmm. you video edit it, and then you put your own voices up and you put music. So you're basically trying to like always work within a 90-minute or less format. Yeah. Mm. So you're always giving yourself that discipline of like, okay, let's try to tell the story in that time or less. But um, because it's so cheap and it's in-house to do it that way for over three years, it's kind of like you've built in, gosh, five to six reshoots, uh, like entire feature-length reshoots. Sure. You know, to, and so that is a lot cut away. We're just never putting it all up as an assembly and seeing it for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Because it yeah. just doesn't work that way. Yeah, if, yeah if you, you get in trouble. If you stand up in front of a screening and you go, they're like, how long, what's the running time? And you're like, 94 minutes. Like, yeah. then everybody in the, in the audience is like, oh, no. 
Um, so, it, you know, I mean, I think you, we all know that 90 minutes, because it grows is the yeah. thing. It's like from story reels to, to camera to animation, there is a, a percentage of growth that, that just the movie kind of expands once you get camera and animation in there. So you want to mm. try to keep the, the story reels themselves as tight as you can we're, to, we're to give room. We're trying to keep them closer to 80 minutes mm-hmm. so that by the time we're actually Done. performing yeah. it and shooting it, 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 it'll, it will just naturally expand the same amount of shots to about 90 minutes. An animator will just say, like, I cannot, this character cannot do this in that amount of time. Like, you need, need to more give me more room. time. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned there at the beginning that um, Carter was the only film that you really went into with yeah. a plan to continue on, and yeah. and obviously that that experience, I imagine, it may still be painful for you. But is it was it a bruising experience for you? Have you had time to look back on that and reflect? I mean, the the, re- the lack of response to it or the negative response to yeah. it was definitely bruising, and and uh, but my experience making the film and my feelings about the film itself uh, have always been really positive i mean i i did a lot of soul searching i would i that film shows up a lot i mean it's it's on a lot of channels it's on a lot of air, yeah. airplane flights and every once in a while i would just watch it and no i can take it like what did i do wrong and you know and and i'm every time i'm very happy with what i made it's like that's exactly the film i set out to, yeah. to, to make so in that sense um it's been more forgiving over time. I, you, I can't tell you. I don't think a day goes by somebody doesn't come up to me and says, and they they actually whisper like there's somebody around. Like <laughs> I actually like that film, and I'm like, oh, you could tell me that out loud. It's fine, you know. And uh, I I do too, you know. And yeah. so it found its audience. I just guess it it, it was it was never meant to be Did it find on it such just... a huge platform. I guess. Yeah. Did it find the audience maybe a, a little bit too late? We had we had Shane Black, for example, on the uh, on mm-hmm. the podcast a few months ago. And he was talking about how the nice guys was just about to come out in the states, and he said, mm-hmm. "Kiss Kiss Bang Bang" found its audience about five years after it yeah. came out, yeah. uh, and I would like the nice guys to find its audience now and not in five years' right. time. A bit nice screenings, I know, and I I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's I think it's a club that that. Um, that people have, that have made films that have completely been forgotten, they'd love to be in. <laughs> you know, it's just I'm I'm more the half full of like I'm just grateful that people know it still and they and and they seek it out and they want to watch it and they show it to other people and that's really the the motive for all the films I've ever gotten to work on is like you're sure you'd like immediate success, but mm. but the biggest thing is like will somebody be still watching this like i pull out old movies and 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 want to watch you know yeah. and and want to make sure my i've passed on to my friends or my kids you know and go you've got to make sure you watch this and it lives on and and that's really the game that uh the long the long ball that mm. i've been in well you know of, of, of course i don't, I don't know what what the, the plans are and what the universe has in store for you but you know 13 years after finding Nemo mm-hmm. comes finding Dory and in that time is enough time for a movie to grow its audience for people to see it again I mean is there no hope at all for continuing John Carter as far as you're concerned or I don't think so I yeah. mean I mean, not with that exact you know crew cast and all okay. that stuff I think I mean um, you never say never but I, I don't I, I mean I would fine if, if it gets rebooted and found <laughs> and redone another way okay. you know but uh yeah. What is next for you? How, how do because I I get the sense that a lot of ideas percolate. You talked the other day about how films have to live in your head for about mm-hmm. a year or so before they and if the idea stays, mm-hmm. then it's worth persevering with. Yeah. Um, were other ideas jostling with Finding Dory at the time? For oh, there always are. There's always yeah. multiple ones, and it's, it's it's almost like having multiple burners on the stove, and which ones finally come to the front. And so mm-hmm. there's about two or three, but they're none of them are fully baked yet. Okay. So. And uh, Lindsay, what's what's next for you? 
Uh, I'm taking a break. No, I'm going <laughs> to see my kids. I, feel, I hear I have three. I don't know. I, can't, I think I only remember two of them. And uh, and then I'm actually um, heading back into Pixar. I'm uh, I'm actually um, supposed to be running development. I've been supposed to be running development for about a year now, and I've been <laughs> not doing it. Um, so all the films that are kind of way out, um, really early on in their development uh, kind of cycles, is is stuff I'm supposed to be keeping an eye on. Mm. And then also something we're calling new media, which. Um, <laughs> is trying to figure out kind of if there's different types of stories to be told and different ways to tell them. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, we'll okay. see. I don't know. And Andrew, of course, you're obviously as well part of the, uh, the Pixar Brain Trust, mm-hmm. which is, uh, as, is that a scary job title. That's, that's, that's a lot of, um, there's a lot of responsibility. That. It's always been there. It's, it's yeah. actually a title that was thrown on a, on a, on a process that's been there since the beginning, mm. so I don't, I don't really think of it that way. Mm. I actually, I think a lot of us now bristle that we ever called it that in, <laughs> in, in that it's become some hallowed thing. Yeah. It used to just be, let's get the gang together and just start talking. You know? yeah. So any kind of formalization or it starts to just sound like a star chamber or a tribunal or something like that. And it's just not, it's just, it's like getting your friends together and going that, you know, you can be safe around creatively and just being mm-hmm. honest with you. And even internally in the building, sometimes it can turn into this hallowed thing that I just feel is not helpful. It, you, you just yeah, want yeah. it to be as relaxed and safe and as comfortable as, but he's place. still on it, but I'm still on it, <laughs> <laughs> but he's still on it. She says, yeah. looking at him. Yeah. No, intentionally I'm being not. in charge of the films that yeah. are way out. I'm like, he's I'm, still I'm never, on I'm, it. I'm never off of it. Let me yes. put it that way. Well, can you get the Pixar Brain Trust then working on a new title for the Pixar Brain Trust? Is that yes, the, we should. That That's our first thing, thing to do is yeah. to go like, yeah. how do we want to retitle the Pixar Brain Trust? All right, we'll throw some ideas your way okay, next time. Cool. Uh, awesome, uh, Andrew Lindsay. Thank you very thank much. Thank you coming. very much. Great to talk to you, Chris. Thanks. <laughs> what? Shut up. <laughs> I'm not. Re- uh, there isn't really a restraining order, but I did interview him like 16 times for John Carter, and then again oh, your for restraining Dory. order. Yeah, my um, so when I hear the words Chris and restraining order in a sentence, I immediately sort of the two of them kind of come together. It's weird, that isn't it? God. Well, he does have a few. He's he's built up a collection. Bless him. Um, so it's time for some movie news. What have we got this week? We should probably maybe start by running up Comic Con. Another podcast special, it feels, there. <laughs> the amount of sheer... The, I mean, where to even begin? Lots and lots of footage yes. at Comic-Con. Uh, lots and lots of announcements, the most exciting of which for me certainly being the announcement of Star Trek Discovery. I say the announcement, the naming of the naming Star of, Trek yes. Discovery, uh, which is Brian Fuller's new Star Trek TV series. We also got a look at the Discovery leaving mm. the asteroid base. Um, Someone suggested it looked like a saucer section welded to a bird of prey. Yes, which is not a bad description. Um, very interesting, very exciting. I also love the fact that it's going to be heavily serialised. It's going to be one story spread across the whole season, so mm-hmm. not a kind of, you know, anomaly of the week format. Yeah. Uh, could not be more excited about this TV show. The Star Trek back on the small screen is actually know. almost more exciting than Star Trek when it comes back to the big screen. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. It's epic. It's huge. What do you think, Phil? I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Well done. Well done. So excited. Um, it, uh, hang on. I do have a question. Sure. The, we haven't had Star Trek for a few years now mm-hmm. on the small screen. Mm. Things have changed on the small screen. What's going to change for Star Trek? Well, well, I think the reliance entirely on an arc story is a mm. bit of a change because there's, always, there's been an arc in the background since Deep Space Nine. Um, but this sounds like it's going to be much more kind of developed and much more central to the to the story. There's been a lot of speculation about this one. Um, so this will take place in the prime Star Trek timeline. So the, the timeline of the original series, Next Generation, etc., rather than 
that of the J.J. Abrams mm. reboot that we were discussing last week. Um, people have been trying to speculate about the ship based on its number. So Star Trek numbering is supposed to be consistent, but actually isn't. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's been a bit of speculation that it could be sort of between the original series and Next Generation or between Enterprise and the original series because that number, I think it's 1031, which would put it at an earlier model than the Enterprise, but a later iteration of that model. Maybe they've gone round like license plates. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they have. Maybe they've they come have. Come full circle. Yeah. So, but it's interesting because they didn't. They didn't set a time frame for it. They didn't announce any characters or sort of the, the premise of the series. Just the name and the ship, mm. and that's already got us excited. It really? Has. Okay. Do they have to do any of that Marvel Marvel verse thing of trying to sort of vaguely tie in the movie world and the and the. Well, the different timelines, different 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 universes in many yeah. ways, because it's a different reality. Because they altered the timeline, so now the two things, the movie now is completely separate from the TV universe. Yeah, because the TV universe, as Helen says, is in the prime. So the Star beginning Trek of universe. the reboot of Star Trek, when they head off in a different different parallel leg of the trouser of time, that takes them away yeah. completely. Yeah. So if there's two legs of the trousers of time which mm. diverge at the crotch of the in- inciting incident at the beginning of 2009 Star Trek, then that sent J.J. Abrams down, let's say, the right leg, mm. whereas everything else happens in the left leg. And think of Eric Banner as the gusset. <laughs> well ahead of you there. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we helped. Okay. Um, <laughs> Moving on to I'm other so comic sorry. news. Uh, yes. We saw our first glimpse of the Justice League. Helen, what did you think of that? Do you know what? I was enormously encouraged by it. Um, I thought it it had much more of the tone that I want to see from a movie where cool super people get together and do super things. Um, Because everything is not doom and gloom, all right? Oh, my God. Uh, I read a really interesting article on Forbes um, over the weekend, which was talking about... Even though DC went, did extremely well this Comic-Con, Marvel still probably did better. And the reason for that is Marvel, when it comes to these things, goes, you, you already love us and we're going to do it again. Whereas DC, every time they come along, it seems to be, OK, we know we screwed up last time, but this one's going to be better. Uh, but I think they did convince, you know, convince us or certainly give us some promising signs that this one really is going to be better, mm. that Wonder Woman is going to be better, that Justice League is going to be better, that they have a different tone to both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And, and I think that's got to be a good thing. I like the look of the Flash. Um, I thought Jason Momoa looked very pretty. I didn't get much more of his character from that, but I get that he's going to be the brooding, grumpy one. Yes, he okay, growled fine. a lot. He growled, yeah. He, he growls well. We know this about him. Um and Cyborg didn't really get much of a look in and I want to see more Wonder Woman, but it does seem that she's working very much hand in glove with Bruce Wayne, which mm. has got to be a good thing. So I'm I am encouraged. I'm saying Ezra Miller felt the standout of that yeah. bit of footage for me. I thought he was very funny as the Flash, a much needed humour to leaven the misery. Yeah, And also he has a, a, a big job himself because he's making a different impression as Flash and he's already seems to be doing it he's, he's I'm, I'm liking him already despite the fact that you know Grant mm. Gustin is already killing it on TV as the Flash so he's yeah full pro- full props to him it was great and yeah getting got strong Quicksilver echoes from from Ezra Miller yeah which is a good thing I but think. I think yeah but I think sort of the wry eyebrow on the face of, uh, of, of Justice <laughs> League which it needs doesn't it and he'll have a different I think he'll bring a different energy to it you know when we see a bit more of him of course for me the the 
a definitive Batman of the weekend was still Lego Batman. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love, you know, I, I had no problems when I saw um, Batman Superman, despite my many problems with it. I had no problems actually with Ben Affleck's performance. I like him as Batman, but he's no Will Arnett, is he? Come on. That is a Batman I can get behind because he's ridiculous. Yes, Robin's trousers joke was uh, uh, the standout of that for me, I think. Trousers. Yes. More trousers. More trousers. <laughs> Fewer gussets, but yes, trousers. Yes. <laughs> that looked kind of funny. I liked um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed that trailer. We haven't seen any of these Fantastic Beasts, so so far it's been more of the sort of where to find them. Yeah. Yes. But we're not sure. But now we've got a bit of but Fantastic. But now we've got some beasts. Mm. They've shown us a bit of scaly ankle, which is nice. Because this film is going to need it's, scaly you know, ankles. It's, it's a film about <laughs> mythical creatures and, and a what's he called? Mazi zoologist. Mazi zoologist. Ma- ma- yeah, something Mazi like that. Mazi zoologist. Yeah. I, I, I'm fascinated by this film. I really don't know where it's going to land because the tone for me doesn't feel like Harry Potter, despite the odd motif here mm. and there. Uh, and you know, the, even the terminology, you know, magis, non-magis, you know, it, it does feel like a completely separate thing. Will it land? Will it not land? I mean, obviously, it's based on a like a thirty-page comic relief book. That's not a great start, but let's not hold that oh, against no, it. But there's, there's, um, yeah, there's yes, it has a, a proper story. story. It has some interesting people in it. Uh, yeah, it's a completely unknown quantity for me. I really don't know what to make of it, but I very much want to see it. But that's good. Yeah, it's it's nice to have a little bit of something that feels new, even if it's attached to a previous property. It feels mm. new, and I think that's a valuable thing in this day and age. We haven't discussed Wonder Woman. Um, I'm obviously a yay. Oh, okay. Well, that sums that up. Yes. Phil? <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I thought it looked pretty good. I'm not 100 percent convinced by this World War One setting, but yeah, um, it seems a bit on the nose in the hundredth anniversary of the thing. But you know, whatever. Um, I mean, I know Zack Snyder's been there before with Sucker Punch. Of course, it seems like a slightly unusual sort of is, backdrop. Is it, is it fair to say film. you have some issues with it? Oh, oh God, that's too not soon, good. James. Too soon. <laughs> that's not good. Um, um, but yeah, uh, it looked it looked confident. And I think that's really important. And um, she's charismatic. Yeah. Um, would have liked to have seen Warhorse cantering around in the background. <laughs> but you can't have it all. Um, and yeah, I mean, I thought it was a really good trailer. No question. All right. It looked like a good trailer. Particularly pleased to see the return of the uh, electric cello at the end there. Well, yeah, well, yeah, you have to have that at this point, don't you? Shout out to John Nugent, who loves that tune more than <laughs> If you can call him up and just play it down the phone to him, he'd, yeah, he'd really appreciate that. that. Um, do we have any other news? Uh, well, I we- will say, sorry, can I just jump in and say the highlight of Comic-Con uh, for me, and I didn't actually see it because I wasn't there, was the 30th anniversary Aliens reunion panel. Uh, but luckily the entire thing is on the internet. I do wholeheartedly recommend you track it down and watch it. And I think it's up officially. I don't even think it's a dodgy stream. Um, you know, Michael Bean was there. Cameron was there. Scotty Weaver was there. Lance Henriksen was there. Bill Paxton was there. Carrie Henn was there. Uh Unbelievable! I mean, I would have flown out there just for that had I not had so much work to do. That is a terrific. You've been, you've clearly been to my Segway Academy, haven't you? <laughs> that leads us beautifully into the new issue of Empire, right, Helen? It's out Woo! today as we record this. Yesterday, as you listen, oh. uh, and yes, in it is a giant feature on the making of, the conception of, and the development of Aliens, otherwise known as the greatest movie ever made. Well, I mean, it's definitely up there. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating piece uh, written by our own Ian Nathan, who is, of course, an alienologist. An alienologist. He's literally written the book on the subject. Um, and this is about how Cameron 
uh, made the film, uh, what was involved in, in sort of pitching it, putting it together, bringing it to life. Not so much just the shoot, because you've probably read about that before, but everything that went sort of before and after that. Um, and uh, with some with some new photos as well, it's a rather gorgeous piece. So uh, check that out. But it is but the tip of the iceberg in this issue. Um, is that a James Cameron reference? Oh, good. Oh, it good. wasn't even. Oh, look at that. I've Segways also been to your Segway Academy. Um, so, yeah, this is our uh, this is our Suicide Squad issue. So we have we have three different covers. If you're lucky enough to be a subscriber, you get the absolutely gorgeous Margot Robbie riding on a bomb cover that you can... Well, I certainly plan on colouring in at some point. Um, but we also have the full Suicide Squad on another cover and... Jared Leto's Joker on a third. So you've got your choice of images there. Um, we have Nick's huge report on the film inside with some genuinely quite astonishing claims about how this film was made. Um, it, 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 will, it will really surprise you. Uh, David Ayer sounds like he could be a member of the squad himself. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did a, a history of the Joker both on screen and on the page and continuing with this theme. We don't just put, throw this stuff together. We put together the 50 greatest villains of all time. So we got this list of the 50 greatest villains by asking some of the greatest villains of TV and film to vote for their favourites. So it's the villains' villains. It's, this is the villains' villains. We got people like Clancy Brown. We got Tobin Bell. We got Jason Isaacs. We got uh, Mads Mikkelsen, David Morrissey, Robert Patrick, uh, Louise Fletcher, Robert Englund all voted, all among those who voted, in fact, for this list of the greatest villains of all time. Spoilers, I can tell you the Wicked Witch of the West is on there. I can tell you that Nurse Ratchet is on there. I can tell you that Mary Poppins is on there. That's a bit of copy you need to read. (laughs) As well as the likes of Darth Vader, Dracula, etc. A lot of category C faces. <laughs> a lot of category C faces. You are not wrong. It's a good looking issue. And also, if you go back to the review section, mm-hmm. um, it's a chance to sort of delve deeper into the, the making of High Rise, which is um, which which has got Ben Wheatley on the phone talking about... Chris Scott, Ben Wheatley on the phone talking about some of the little kind of weird vignettes that went into that film, which, if you've seen it, you'll know is pretty much full of them. Um, and a review of, or a sort of a precy of um, Dawn of Justice. Yes, um, the ultimate edition. The ultimate edition. Which Chris reviewed. Mm-hmm. Which Chris reviewed. I also finally got to write a masterpiece about Cyrano de Bergerac, which is one of my absolutely all-time favourite films. And in the preview section at the front of the magazine, you can read about The Hunt for the Wilder People, which I certainly have been banging on about for a couple of months, because it is wonderful, and you can get an idea why in that piece. Um, we have so much more. We have uh, a piece on Moana, the great animated film, I hope. Um, there's a piece, We've got our review, obviously, of Star Trek Beyond. We've got Danny DeVito's Pint of Milk, which is definitely worth a read. Um, and uh, what else? Big, Lots more. Big piece um, on Tom Hanks starring Monsters, Inc. spin-off, Sully. <laughs> um, I'm is... not sure that's correct. Wait, no. No, yes, oh, no Sully sorry. Fly. <laughs> Different Sully. We um, also have the only Batman to measure up to Will Arnett's Lego Batman, Michael Keaton, talking about his career. He's the Empire interview this month, and the return of Bridget Jones, and Noel Clark on his Hood trilogy, as in kidulthood, adulthood, and now brotherhood. And by Michael Keaton, you of course mean the Vulture. The Vulture, yes, and the Birdman. I know, it's so uh, meta. 
really is. So it's a fantastic issue. Pick it up in all good or evil news agents. We don't mind, although really, you know, think about the good ones. Um, any other news we should be talking about? Have we discussed Brie Larson? No, we have not, and we should. Brie Larson was announced on stage at Marvel this this weekend as Captain Marvel. Now, this has been rumoured for a while. Um, she's obviously been in the running. She's been a lot of people's favourites. And uh, it has now come to pass. The newly minted win- minted Oscar winner is going to be Captain Marvel, which is fr- fantastic, really. So uh, you're looking at me like, please explain who Captain Marvel is, no, Helen. I, I, I know who Captain Marvel is. I've never, ever read a dedicated Captain Marvel comic. I have, however, read uh, her exploits in many of the Marvel crossovers. Now, this mm. is Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers, correct. Yes. Uh, and she's marvellous. Oh, very good. She is, of course, also an Air Force pilot. Um, who's already like driven, obsessed with breaking speed records, obsessed with being the best, when we meet her. Um, I, I don't know if this is going to be an origin story, so we may not meet her in that sense. Um, but then she, through an accident with an alien piece of Kree technology, the Kree are obviously the race that we've now just about come across in Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. Um, but through an accident with that, she gets uh, these powers of flight, of enhanced strength, of uh, able to kind of shoot kind of beam things, from her hand that technical might not be term. the technical term um, and uh, and she's ba- so basically in the current Marvel Cinematic Universe lineup, that puts her somewhere close to Thor I'd say you know she's not coming in at the bottom end here she's probably she's on a level almost with Iron Man with suit but without suit now remind me is Captain Marvel the one that Rogue nicks her powers from yes in some of those yeah early cartoons I obviously don't not in the Marvelverse because Rogue Marvel doesn't verse. feature there exactly. but that's the one so Rogue's only mutant power is, is power sucking yeah and she sucks Captain Marvel's powers puts her in a coma and therefore that's where Rogue in the comics is super strong and flies and stuff exactly excellent um, so but but Captain Marvel in the kind of modern incarnation if you get the Kelly Sue DeConnick um, comics um, and read those she yeah the, that whole thing is kind of retconned yeah well just not not relevant anymore okay. basically okay but yeah, it is really exciting. It is Marvel's first female solo lead. About time. <laughs> um, but it right. is happening, yeah, which is great. And she will obviously also be in uh, the Justice... No, no, the other one. <laughs> Not, the Justice, <laughs> Not the Justice League. The one that isn't the Justice Thank League. You. She will be in Avengers Infinity War. Uh, in fact, the, the writers of Infinity War, um, who are obviously also the Captain America Civil War writers, uh, um, Marcus and McFeely, they were talking about writing for characters who hadn't been cast yet back in January because they were putting together those two scripts at that time I feel like this is one of the Mm. major characters they were talking about so expect her to have a role there Hooray! Hooray! One bit of non-Comic-Con news that I wanted to mention Uh, Netflix goes on powering through some new original properties and one that's been announced this week is a feature film about the Panama Papers I don't know if you know about the Panama Papers Tell us more They are papers Rolling papers (laughs) from Panama Um, they are basically a story that broke in which um, a couple of German journalists got access to um, 11.5 million documents from a law firm based in Central America, mm-hmm. um, which is a large amount of photocopying. <laughs> and uh, these documents have revealed all kinds of... I'm not even sure that it, it's unf- all unfolded yet, has it? It's sort of been coming out vying with... Um, the kind of WikiLeaks, yes, um, for really kind of delving into tax avoidance and corruption at a kind of government and large scale corporate level. Yes, um, so Netflix is boldly 
gone into production, pre-production with a film version of this. Now, how they go about doing that when there's presumably an awful lot still to be re- revealed about this story, I'm not sure, but it's happening and uh, uh, it could be it could be really interesting. And Ted Sarandos, the company's sort of uh, check signer, says we're confident that we'll be able to deliver a gripping tale that will deliver the same type of impact as the Panama Papers when they were revealed. And that's a big claim, actually. <laughs> that well, is a very honest, big claim. I feel claim, like but... they have fallen out of the news cycle a little bit. So this could be a kind of a good thing in getting people to realise why this mattered and why it's still important. Will there be an episode dedicated to David Cameron's dad's accounts? <laughs> uh, yes, well, it's a possibly. James, a it's a feature film. But yes, I mean, this is, this is possibly a part of the story um steven soderbergh has been circling Ooh. you circle a project like a vulture do you need a plane like michael a King. light aircraft yeah okay <laughs> well he's been circling the uh, the story not not this particular iteration but for a while so people are you know serious right. filmmakers are interested in doing something interesting um a little bit like oliver stone has been trying to do with his um snowden film which is at least Coming, I mean, which is now finally, I think it had a bit of a sneak preview at Comic Con, mm-hmm. strangely, which doesn't seem like the obvious place yeah. for it, but it, it was a uh, pictures of Oliver Stone at Comic Con surrounded by cosplayers. <sighs> that was weird. I mean, for, fair play to him, he looked like he was having a nice time. But... Weirder than Michael Mann and Chris Nolan. No, those were also weird. They, 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 you know, they, they're sort of they just don't seem like they belong no. entirely, but. We as geeks must be welcoming of those who who want to join us. You know, Michael Mann had a proper rabbit in the headlights look when he <laughs> came out for a black hat. Bless him. Well, you know, fair play to him for actually braving that that environment. Anyway, um, is that all the news? I think that's all the news. I should mention you mentioned Netflix, so I'm just going to point out that Gilmore Girls has Go a trailer then. now. It's coming out in November. Very very excited. How excited are you? I am super excited. This is one of my top things of the year. Um, it's partly because you love Gilmore Girls and partly because Sam will be making an appearance. Yeah, but I don't like Sam. I like Dean. But here in Gilmore Girls, Sam plays a character called Dean. It's very confusing for me. <laughs> so um, uh, I will I will probably be mixed up on that. But honestly, uh, he is not the best of Rory's boyfriends. Rory's boyfriends. Uh, weirdly, Milo Ventimiglia is my favourite of Rory's really? boyfriends. Yep. Really? I, there I said it. He, wow. Okay. Yep. Is it, fair, for her. is it fair and honest also to say that Arrested Development is coming back for another season? Fantastic. In 2017, which, oh, unless man. my calculations are horribly off, is next year. Wow. So, yeah, no word on the movie, but you will be able to see another Are we coming on for six Blutes. seasons in a movie for that one? I don't know what's I think happening. this is season five. And since this whole podcast is now becoming a Netflix advertorial, I will say that uh, Stranger Things 2... We uh we spoke to the Duffers about Stranger Things too, didn't we? You specifically, Phil spoke. To them. I spoke to the Duffers about yeah. that. Yes, I did. Which is um, quite exciting. Yeah, there's they they were interesting. I mean, it, it, we spoke to them back before the show had sort of launched itself, and it's since then gathered a real critical kind of and popular yeah. head of steam. So I think a season two um, is is very much likely, mm. and they've been talking about it in quite specific terms. And they told us that they want it to be like a, a Harry Potter. Okay. Uh, not in the sense that you know it'll have um, wands and magic. Trip to Gringotts for, for their first <laughs> bank account, but but more that it's just taking the kids on 
you know a new adventure and, well no actually sort of it's, it's, it's a sort of directly plays on oh, after okay. this season is what they're suggesting oh good that it'll go straight on and it'll yeah. explain a lot of things that were still shrouded in mystery without giving too much away to those people who haven't seen it from season one so Fantastic. more of the kids and more of the upside down and more of the more of the unpackaging of, of the mysteries oh. is what to expect when I think it's more when than if it gets announced. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Fantastic. Okay, so let's move on because we have, it is a two-guest week and uh, here is the second guest. We are very long-term fans of this director who basically reinvented action cinema with the Bourne supremacy and continues to push it in new and pleasantly lefty directions with Jason Bourne, which is the return of the franchise that really established him on the map. And of course, it's another con- uh, collaboration with his favourite film star, Matt Damon. Uh, once again, we sent Chris to interview Paul Greengrass. Enjoy. I was very um, anxious going in that we didn't let ourselves down, you know, because I'm very proud of the ones I did before, so I didn't want to come up with one that was not as good, you know? No, absolutely not. So that was the thing that most most preoccupied me. Oh, fantastic. Just uh, making sure it was slightly... hitting new ground, or...? Your worry is that you'll come up with one that's not good. Yeah, and will disappoint people. And the truth is, with you know, particularly where you've got a franchise like Bourne, where there's a very devoted sort of fan base that loves them mm-hmm. and is all with you, they'll know if you've disappointed them, and yeah. and you'll feel it. Yeah, and that makes it hard because you're always the bar set high, rightly, and you've got to meet it yeah. or not. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and of course, you, you came close-ish to making this film a few years ago. You, you, when the announcement really. was made, you walked I away. Did, I, mean, I did think about it a year or two after Ultimatum. Yeah. But, but in the end, it was, I didn't have one to, I didn't have, I didn't have one to make inside and I didn't have a desire to make it, is the truth of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to be honest, and then I didn't really give it much thought after that, to be honest, till. Matt and I sat down whenever it was, 18 months ago. <laughs> and of course, when people like me, like me, speak to you every single time for every single film, and it becomes yeah, worse than next born. I'd noticed it sort of disappeared. Oh, really? With Captain Phillips, it yeah, just it, yeah, it had gone I away? so, yeah. It's a long time. It's nearly 10 years since I did a Bourne movie. Yeah. I remember watching you guys in Waterloo. Oh, really? Running through. Come? Yeah. We were, we were there and watched with uh, Paddy and Matt and right, right. a group of extras you kept up to frame. Well, not extras, real people. Yeah, yeah. But you kept up to try and yep. frame out somehow. But it was fun. I'm glad yeah. I did it. Yeah. I'm glad I did it. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, I've, I've never seen it in front of an audience. We've not, we didn't test it. Oh, <laughs> really? No, we didn't test it. We didn't screen it in any way. Is that a deliberate choice or was that a time pressure thing? What, what, what was it? Uh, no, I think it was... We screened it for Donna Langley and the sort of execs at Universal, and they loved it. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, "Do you want to put it? Do you want to test it or put it in front of her?" She said, "That's no, great. We're, we're good." Wow. So did did it change much over time, or did you have it locked pretty the much the film? Yeah. Well, I think what was different about this one to the previous two that I did was that we had a screenplay going in, which we <laughs> never did before. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, genuinely. I mean, if you yeah. talk to anybody, that was the problem that was what made the other two so arduous to make because you were sort of having to find the film as you went along which Mm -hmm. is very scary now you can never know everything about a film and nor should you because a film should be a journey of discovery but you need a decent roadmap Mm. and that's what we had this one and so it and you know that that meant we could shoot it i mean born ultimatum was something like 
135 days and change. This was 95. <laughs> so that shows you, you know, that, yeah. that what the difference between having a script and not yeah. makes. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things about the film that, that struck me. We can't mm-hmm. talk about specifics yet. I mean, there's, there were, we were hoping to do a spoiler thing with you, but you know, well, I think maybe hopefully another time. But a couple of things about the movie struck me. The scale of the movie seems consciously bigger than the last one. There are story reasons why Bourne ends up in Vegas, but that car chase is much bigger than anything you, you did before. The, the sequence in Athens at the beginning, I was about five minutes into the sequence where, before I realised I was in the middle of an epic action sequence. Right. Did you deliberately escalate the scale of the movie this time around? Not really. To be honestly mm. and absolutely, uh, no, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, bear in mind resource-wise, Bourne is a big movie, of course it is, but compared to its Peers, mm-hmm. which would be Mission Impossible franchise, Bond. He's not clinging on to the side of a plane. We're middleweight. Yeah. I'm talking about in terms of budget. Yeah. You know, this Bond was made for about half oh, wow. of what the last Bond was made for. Um, so there are resource restrictions in a Bond movie, you know. So it wasn't that. And this was made for about what Ultimatum was made. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we've suddenly gone bigger in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just. That's what the landscape demand. That's what the, those are the images and the stories that came into my mind. I mm-hmm. mean, Vegas, there are all sorts of story reasons why I wanted it to end in Vegas and that were nothing to do with the action component. But then it's sort of, well, oh, that's fantastic. We'll have a chase, we'll have a car chase on the strip. Mm. And as I sort of turned that over in my mind, the more, I mean, there hasn't been a car chase in Vegas, actually, bizarrely. You'd think there would have been lots but that actually has not been one it must be pretty tricky to do one <laughs> well then there's the whole issue of would we ever get permission to close yeah. the strip and that took greg goodman and frank months to negotiate wow. you know and i must say they were fantastic the city you know and the authorities i mean they really really made it work for us because i mean we were we closed that strip for about a month mm. you know i mean in at night obviously and uh that's a not. That's a massive undertaking you know, from a safety, from a logistical, from a disruption point of view. But it was worth it. I mean, it it, it has got scale. But if you have a car chase on the strip, it's going to look big because it is big, you know. But I think it's still an identity. It still feels like a born sequence. Oh, yeah. I would say absolutely. Yeah. But no, I didn't sit there and go, "Let's eat loads of steroids," you know. I, <laughs> I mean, it just. It's a natural progression. Yeah, I think rather so. than a steroidal think, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Moscow chase was pretty big. It was pretty big, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you look at that; that was not small. Yeah, but uh, I imagine shooting that, the uh, the permissions needed to shoot where you shot that that car chase, and the permissions Which needed the to Moscow. shoot in Vegas. Yeah, I mean that's that's a different ballgame. Well, Moscow was such a much more permissive city. You know what you can do in Moscow is vastly greater than what you can do in oh, certainly at that time. Mm-hmm. I'd go out and look at the strip at night and you'd just be, oh my God, this goes on forever. <laughs> you know? And those cars are really moving fast. Yeah, yeah. It was thrilling to watch. It's a great sequence. It's a great sequence. If Vegas had fallen through, did you have a backup? Blackpool, for example? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we didn't. I mean, we discussed all sorts of ways that we could execute that chase. Mm-hmm. You know, what would we do if we couldn't get on the strip? Would we sh- shift it to back streets and freeways and stuff mm. like that? But it wouldn't have been as good. 
And uh, uh, the movie starts in Greece. Again, given everything that's gone on in the last uh, few years and everything that, uh, that, that lured you back, I think you were lured back as much by Chris, Rouse and Matt wanting to make a, this movie uh, as by the events of, uh, that, that have unfolded in the world yeah, they, in the last few they, years. As I say, it, 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 was in my, it, it, it wasn't something I was thinking about, Bourne. Mm. It was a strange sort of sequence of events, and it happened very quickly, really. Mm. You know, Matt and Chris were much more confident than I was that there was one to be done. Um, I had more desire, I think. I was the sort of Eeyore of the trio. <laughs> oh, God. Do you know what I mean? Why would we do that, you know? And uh, they both were clear that the world had changed, and yeah. I could see that. Like, yeah. and, and then Matt said to me, you know, listen, we're very lucky to have an audience that love these films. We could just make it because people really want us to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, now, that's not enough to make a film, but it's certainly... I'd never thought about it in that way, to be fair. Mm. And it is true. You know, mm. it's, it, 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 you're very lucky if you've got an audience that really likes what you do f in those films. So don't we owe it to see if we can find one? That really got me to that place in my mind. And then when Chris and I really sat down and spent some time, because in the end it became, OK, well, let's just... Uh, let's spend some time undividedly seeing if there is one. Mm. And actually, quite quickly, I found that there was. Mm. That's honestly how it went. And was then quite quickly, it's like, oh, yeah, no, OK, we'll be, let's go for it. Okay. I mean, you still have that anxiety that I've still got, which is, will it match the others? Yeah. You can't know till you get it up in front of an audience. Absolutely. Was there a, a, an image? And was whether it will be true to the character and true to the world, you know? Mm. Was there an image or a sequence or a, a moment in the film that, or, or, or a, something in the, in the political current surrounding the film that, that made you think, okay, this is it? I think once I it? thought that we could have an opening sequence in Athens, mm -hmm. that came quite quickly, that. And once I had become aware of these gigantic sort of technology cyber hacking conventions mm. that take place in Vegas that are absolutely colossal and which are sort of, they're a bit like, you know, Vienna in the Cold War. They're the place, they're, they're the new intelligence bazaars of the 21st century. It's okay. where, you know, the CIA and the NSA meet the hacking community, meet the big social media players, meet the big technology companies. And they all happen there, and they happen in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And once I'd got that, you kind of go, okay, well, that's a movie. That journey from mm -hmm. Athens to Vegas, mm -hmm. that's, that's a movie. That's did a you, born movie. Absolutely. Did you go to uh, Vegas? Did you go to one of those conventions? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What are they like? Well, they're very, very... That's where you realise that the landscape really has changed mm. from, from 2007. Mm. It's, a, it's a wholly different world, the world of cyber and social media companies and technology companies, and you feel like the future is happening mm. right in front of you. It's a movie that's very plugged into that. Again, something we can't really talk about in detail, but uh, it's very plugged into that side of things. And does it make you more aware, more paranoid, for want of a better word, about uh, surveillance these days and the, the, the lengths that governments really get, will go to? I don't really get paranoid, I don't think. But They told me you'd say that. <laughs> um, also, I'm not much of a joiner. You know, one of the reasons I think why I love the character is because he's not a joiner either. It's not mm. like he's on somebody's side against somebody else. He's mm. just looking at the world and mm. saying, well, who elected you and who, what's your agenda? You know, mm. he says at one point in the film, and I really love it as a moment, he says, I'm not on your side. <laughs> and he's on nobody's side, Jason Bourne. That's the yeah. point. He's the individual. He's the free man, isn't he? Yeah. In a world 
of too much power. Mm. In a way, he almost gets drawn into the, uh, the situation again by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that something that uh, you and Chris wanted to do specifically to have him? Because he, he's, he's, he's always the wrong man in, in the wrong place at the wrong time, almost wrongfully accused in many ways. You, yes, he is. You've always got to answer the question. I mean, it was the key sort of first question Chris and I wrestled with was, where's he been for the last 10 years? What's mm. he been doing? It didn't feel to us like he, he would have found somebody, settled down, had kids, be working, you know, in a factory somewhere. That, you know, that just didn't seem uh, like Jason Bourne. felt to us like he would be haunted and there wouldn't have been any peace from Ultimatum. I mean, oddly, Ultimatum was very cathartic because he got his memory back. Yeah. But when I really sat down, when Chris and I really sat down and thought about, well, okay, he swims out the Hudson, gets away... And then what? What does he do? Well, the truth is, he's remembered everything. So he knows that he's a killer. Yeah, yeah. And he he presumably knows every detail of every killing that he ever did mm-hmm. and can recall it, which he couldn't before. Mm-hmm. So he knows the full extent of his own culpability. And so although at the end of Ultimatum he's renounced the devil and his works, you know. He's <laughs> renounced killing and all of that. Yes. He says, I'm no longer Jason Bourne. Yeah. It, just on a straight psychological level, you know that he could not escape the guilt. Mm. Just because he's remembered everything doesn't mean the guilt goes away. Just because he says, I'm no longer Jason Bourne, mm. doesn't mean he can escape the guilt of having once been Jason Bourne. So then you're left with a character who is haunted. And then you ask yourself, well, how long can a man exist in the shadows feeling this inner torment Mm. there has to come a point where it's intolerable yeah the tipping point Mm. and that's i suppose was the moment the sort of eureka moment where you go i got it okay so we've got this athens world tipping and we've got this character is tipping and now we're in business we've got born aligned with the world yeah yeah. in a new world but it's today and off we go and uh as a director of a of a of a thriller, obviously, is it a boon that you have this situation where the the, the world is so advanced technologically that Bourne can't step out of a building without uh, a facial recognition software spotting him somewhere? I think is it, it's is good. it difficult to write around that? Is yeah, it, is, for sure, yeah. yeah but I think it's good. Yeah, because I think it for a kickoff, you 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 feel that Bourne is a man out of his time. Yep. Which I think is a, there are opportunities there, and I think we seize them. You mm. know, it puts him at a disadvantage. I think. Mm. you know in an interesting way i think in the end by that giving away where we end up i think the idea of the past giving way to the future is sort of Mm. what the film's also charting absolutely and uh without talking too much about the future Mm. uh over the last few years you've been uh you know allied to a number of projects famously of course your your martin luther king picture memphis um do you know what's next i don't i absolutely don't I'm sort of relaxed about it. Mm. I mean, I've got a few things that I'm thinking about, but to be honest, it's been... I literally only finished this a few days ago. (laughs) So so right now I'm going to see it in front of an audience, which I've Uh never seen before. Tonight? Tonight. Tonight, okay. And uh, and then I'm going to go on holiday. (laughs) (laughs) And that's actually, honestly, see my family and come back in September and then I'll figure out what I'm going to write and then I'll sit down and write and it. Decide. So when, when, if a project doesn't happen for you, for example, Memphis was put in the back burner, is that it for you or is it always something no. that, that can come back at, a, at another time? No, I mean, I, I'm 
pretty singular and set in my ways about how I do things, I think. I mean, I, I don't have a company. I don't have any interest in being involved in lots of things. You know, mm. the commerce of it doesn't really interest me in that sense. Mm. I'm just interested in making the next film, whatever that film is. And the joy of it is that each film is sort of different. You know, I've made small films... Mm. I've made small films over here. I've made lots of television. I've made small films over here. I've made small films like United 93. Mm-hmm. And I've made big popcorn movies too. And, and But somewhere there's a sort of thread between them all that they're all uh, reflecting the world as I see it, mm-hmm. the things mm-hmm. that interest me about the world. And mm-hmm. so when I think about what I'm going to do next, it'll be part of that inner conversation I have with myself. And of course... Mm-hmm. As you move along, you develop things. You know, Memphis, I wrote, you know, 1984, I'm trying to do with Scott Rudin. But you can't make a film until it's ready. Mm. And you can't always know when they're ready, you know. You can't always know what the film is going to be. But what you have to be guided by is what you're interested in. Mm. And Absolutely. be and try and be open to what comes along. Because over the years, occasionally you've you've been linked to uh, to bigger blockbusters, fantastical blockbusters, yes. should I say? Treasure yeah. Island was one that you were you were linked to for a while. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, do you think that, given your worldview and given you like to make movies that are connected in some way to the real world, that those aren't good fits for you, or do they just fall apart for other reasons? Well, what's what's your thinking there? Uh, I think I, I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean it. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't set out consciously to rule in or out anything, mm. you know. But, you know, somebody says, would you like to? And you go, oh, I, I mean, I loved Treasure Island as a kid and yeah. the book, and I love the world of tall ships. I've always wanted to make a tall ships movie. Oh, wow, okay. You know, because yeah. I just, my dad was at sea, yeah. and when I was a kid, I grew up with the romance of tall ships. So, so you go, oh, that would be interesting. Well, I wonder what, how, what that might be, is how your thought processes go. You know, there's nothing, it's not like, it swims into your mind for no reason. Yeah, sure. I mean, you might have 20 conversations and you go, oh, no, that's not really for me. That one, you kind of go, oh, well, okay, hang on, no, I love Treasure Island, I love tall ships, how would that work? And then you spend a week or two looking at it, and then you go, actually, do you know what, I can't really quite see my way. Okay, yeah. How yeah. this might work. Yeah. And then you have a conversation, and that, that's fine. And that, that's sort of how it goes. Uh-huh. You know, it's not, it's not, it, it's nothing more than that, mm. you know. I mean, I remember Fantastic Voyage. Mm. Um, James asking me if I'd have a look at that. That's James Cameron. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they had a, a draft, and it actually had 20 or 30 absolutely brilliant pages. Yeah, it was a good script, but it mm. had 20 or 30 absolutely brilliant pages. Now, normally I wouldn't have been interested in that, but A, it was him, and B, you know, you go, do you know what, that's really, really good. Mm. But I could never see how you could... I could never get beyond the fact that you're shrinking people down and it just didn't feel like me. <laughs> but it's good to be interested in everything. Absolutely. Well, of but, course, you know, Watchmen but, came so close. I mean, you were in pre-production of Watchmen. Absolutely. It was, I would you know, have made that movie. It would have been a very different movie. You know, I, yeah. loved, I loved what he did with it, but um, I would have done it slightly differently. But, yeah. you know, the, the joy of making films is to think about... But you don't want to think about too many different things. You know, mm. you've got to just... Look at that and then go, actually, I'm not quite right or it's not quite right for me. And then you move on to the next one and the next, you know. So it's far too early to say, born five. It's far too early. Come over here, sort out Brexit. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not going to make the mistake of saying never again, because I did that before. But 
But uh, I'm certainly going to go off and do some other things uh, before I even think about it. Have a holiday. Yeah. Paul, awesome. Thank you so much, mate. See you later. So, time to review these suckers. Uh, Should we start with Jason Bourne? Why not? All right. Okay. Jason Bourne is uh, the, the fourth Bourne film. We're into we're really in sort of crystal skull territory here, aren't we? Did the Bourne legacy happen in this world? No, no it didn't. The Bourne legacy went to great pains to always backdrop shots with Jason Bourne stories on the news behind, but this film is pretending that that whole Aaron Cross story didn't really happen. Um, so you're, you're picking up a few years later. Jason Bourne has now set up a bed and breakfast in the Devon coast. Has he? Um, he's got a couple of sprogs. Has uh, he? No, that's not what's happened. He is basically living in Greece, punching out giant Slavs uh, in sort of in kind of covert boxing matches. Right. Um, in dusky kind of, towns. Isn't that come, kind of where we met like Jean-Claude Van Damme at the <laughs> start right. of most it, action it, films? It felt a lot like a deleted scene from Lionheart slash AWOL. Yes. <laughs> yes, they should have called it Born Single Impact. There we go. That sort of, he is in a sort of a, in an 80s action action uh, action sort of hero mode when we meet him and uh, he's sucked back into no guess what the CIA have recruited what? new people to replace oh. all of the bad Treadstone people and guess what they got it wrong again oh. they've hired more evil people no again oh. they need to look at a root and branch look at their HR and recruitment process because Tommy Lee Jones is now running the show at least he's sort of second in command to okay. a shadier but Ooh. less interesting character above him and uh, he's doing bad stuff is he searching every outhouse hen yeah, house he is and dog but he's house. extending that to like Reddit and oh. Facebook no. and all kinds of other stuff they want everyone know everything they want to know your last tweet they want to know what you're doing where you live you know what you're looking for breakfast that's no. where the CIA is at now it's at that granular level and they've got the technology to back it up and Reese Ahmed is uh, comes into play as a kind of a Facebook he's a kind of a Zuckerberg style social media guy and he's cool. got this sort of this thing going on with the CIA but leaving that to one side Matt Damon sucked back in Jason Bourne sucked back in because Julia Stiles your old, our old friend Nikki Parsons yes. has kind of try to hack in and find out what's going on and she's gone to Bourne she's got some information about his past so she's like the Snowden in this story but she's working for shit Julian Assange yeah she's working for shit Julian Assange so she's the Chelsea Manning so this is yes there's a lot of things happening with this whole kind of like you know, cyber cyber hacking hacktivist culture in the film, and uh, Bourne really just wants to he just wants to get on with his life. But but Styles turns up and brings all of the heat with her. So oh. he starts off with this tour de force action sequence set against the austerity riots in Athens. Um, Vincent Cassel is a hitman who is sent to. So you're probably getting a strong sense of déjà vu at this point because it's very similar to things that we've seen before in the in the Bourne trilogy. Let's say, uh, you know, the 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 kind of fellow operative sent against him the the corruption at the heart of the CIA it's got a contemporary sort of flavour to it because it's brought in this Reese Ahmed character who has a sort of potential to, 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 to provide the CIA with enormous amounts of private data so it is definitely sort of nodding to contemporary issues in a way that's kind of interesting but it's not necessarily fully developed all the way through but you know that's not really what you get a born for that's what you probably want to go and watch Snowden for when it comes out, <laughs> I would say, um, or an Alex Gibney film. Mm. You know that this is very much an action movie, and it's really at its best when it's doing that because Paul Greengrass is uh, the thing. That, the thing that I wondered about going to see it is that they, 
Paul Greengrass kind of reestablished the aesthetic for action. Yeah. Um, using all of his sort of interests in old movies and documentary style and handheld, etc. And since then, we've had a whole lot of knockoff action movies that have been good and bad and indifferent. And you will come back to see a Bourne film and think, in the context of that, and think, is it still going to feel fresh? Is it still going to feel engaging and gripping in the way that it used to mm. in that context? Um, and it does, because it's superior, because Paul Greengrass is a superior action director to 99% of other action directors out there and Matt Damon sells the character he's still really really watchable even though his dialogue is like Arnie and Terminator <laughs> level thin um, and on that level alone it's worth a watch I really enjoyed it for that reason it's got two or three tour de four set pieces that are better than anything you'll see and it just reminds you of how good Bourne can be awesome it doesn't do anything new um, we've given it four stars and I think it it's probably at the lower end of the four-star spectrum for me, okay. I would say, or even a very high three-star film, because it doesn't really take the character forward. And I know James wants to chip in at this point, but I would say that I would say that um, you know, without doing anything new, it does you everything know, a lot. well. It does everything well, yeah. by and large. Yeah, it's it, it's it's the reunion tour. It's the comeback tour. It's the it's the they were really big in the sixties <laughs> and they've all got old now, but they've come back for one final farewell and they're rolling out all of the chart toppers and they're performing them with gusto and they're just as brilliant as you remember. But you've heard them a thousand times since. I I really I, I agree with you completely. There is nothing wrong with this film other than we've been here before. Um, I, I feel uh, they talked a lot about they waited for the right story to come along, and I think that. On the one hand, that didn't make a lot of sense because the story seems exactly the same as the other stories uh, and it advances the plot not a great deal. Um, but I think what they mean is they, they found the world had changed significantly since the Bourne Ultimatum and they wanted to update it. And I think the only thing maybe that sat wrongly with me is they felt that they kind of tried to crowbar in as much of the, you know, privacy issues, Hacktivision vision, uh, vision hacktivism uh, issues, you know, and to try and reflect uh, personages, whether it be Assange, whether it be Snowden, you know, whether it be Zuckerberg, you know, it was it was achingly current. Mm. Um, and there's a car chase, and it's amazing, and there's a fist fight, and it's amazing. But is it any more amazing than the previous Bourne fist fights? No. But are is it then still better than all of the others? Probably. You know, it's it's still one of the best action things does you're this, seeing. Does this say something about? Born itself, the, the previous Born films being rather prescient, because I think a lot of the issues that they tackled actually are very much in the news now. Mm. Um, a lot of the the government corruption, the you know the tendency to breach privacy, the, the sort of all controlling ability to get into our private documents. That you know, those were all kind of under the skin of the earlier films as well. Mm. Yeah, surveillance culture. Yeah, but then you could say that you know that's been around since the seventies. Seventies no, no, cinema sure, yeah. is totally full of those issues. Well, the conversation and whatnot, yeah, the conversation yeah. and such like, um, and you know, Battle of Algiers tackles those sorts of you know sure, counterterrorism yeah. issues that Bourne tapped into in the post sort of nine eleven landscape. Mm. It was quite rich for that. But I think the difference between those first three films and this one is that probably what James says, this one's achingly current. Whereas those ones were informed by what was going on around them, but they were very much their own story. Sure. And they didn't feel overwhelmed mm. by the need to be current. And Fair I think enough. that will date this one quite quickly, potentially. Um, but as a Friday night at the cinema, I, I would recommend it, definitely. Yeah. You know, because Bourne is a great character. I still much prefer this film to, to Spectre, I have to say. It's a much better <laughs> film. I think it's a, it's, it's a much better film. And I think, you know, I find quite a lot of, like, action sequences can be quite like being hit over the head with a gong sometimes. Mm. But I never felt that in this one. They're always 
absolutely gripping. But as you say, Greengrass is a supremely talented action director. And this kind of goes back to, you mentioned Bond there, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about in the office, I think, yesterday, where Helen made the bold claim that Bourne is just better than Bond. And I would say that's demonstrably true across the board. It's it's precisely executed. It's incredibly well uh, well done. It, it happens in a much more realistic... I mean, Bourne changed the face of Bond. Uh, and Bond now almost apes Bourne and fails to achieve its height. I feel that Bourne doesn't have to do the things that Bond has to do. Bourne has to tick a certain number of boxes with each yeah. film. Bourne doesn't have to do that. And yet this film now proves that it's in that starting to tip to tiptoe into that terrain where it does need to start doing that. Well, and I think it loses its sort of fleet-footedness as a result. Well, its boxes are different. It's just in this case, the box is... Tommy Lee Jones as David Strathairn as you know <laughs> Brian Cox. It's yeah. just uh, yeah, and the flashback the flashback sequences are a little heavy handed too. Haven't mentioned Alicia Vikander. Mm. Um, I've seen her in two films this week, and that feels like a good week because she's so good. Mm. Like you know, her role could be a bit wrote in this she is kind of like Julia Stiles part two um, <laughs> but she's such a good actress she's interesting actually she's almost one of the interesting faces we were talking about at the beginning just because she's such a good actress although she's obviously a category A I mean there's no one more category A than Alicia Vikander well I hate to take it back to that earlier conversation uh, this category thing this category thing is now how I'm going to see all people as I meet them because <laughs> up until now there have just been two categories and that's because someone told me this about ten years ago that every person's face fits into the category either horse or bun you're either a horse or a bun people have horse faces or they have bun faces <laughs> and since then I have been utterly unable to see someone and not instantly sort them into horse or bun category I have no wish to know which I am thank you you're very much you're a bun thank you okay can we just okay. re-establish category B is the one with all of the real yes yeah. every person uh, no that's category A no, you no, said category no, B said is every person. B category is every A person. is Chris Pine. Yes. Oh, is it? Yes. yes. Oh, wow. Why did I start with? Why would I have started with B? That doesn't make any sense, Phil. Gosh. Anywho, mm. so it was four stars for yes. Jason Bourne. Uh, we do have another film to review. We should probably do that. And that is, of course, Finding Dory, which is the sequel to Finding Nemo. Uh, we pick up a year after the adventures of that film where Dory is now living with Marlon and Nemo. She's kind of living in kind of the garage. <laughs> Ironically, a piece of brain coral uh, next door to their anemone, anemone, anemone. Um, and <laughs> mama, um, mama, mama. <laughs> da, 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 da. she comes to believe or she comes to remember miraculously that she has parents and she realises that she has lost her parents and goes in search of them what did we think of this? we liked it right? yes we liked it but it has polarised the office we have loved it at one end and uh -huh. we have yeah. at the well, other end don't, and don't we have John Nugent at one end and everyone else at the other end that's not fair to call John out on that one I think other people like it a lot too um, but it certainly has polarised more. And I think maybe that's... We can discuss it, but I think that maybe is a, a Pixar-wide issue these days, that their films are landing less consistently than perhaps they used to. But I think... I think it's a bit like the Bourne situation, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's just the amnesiac. <laughs> um, she's also punching out giant slavs <laughs> down by the coral. Um, and uh, it, does, like, it does do a lot of the same stuff as the first film, but not quite as convincingly for instance it starts with her she 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 has vague rem remembrances of of the past yes of treadstone of <laughs> no of waterboard um yeah and no. she the first film gave a sense of the scale and the, the massive her tiny insignificance in this ginormous ocean mm. and yet in the second film it starts with her just being carried away by the sort of dude bodacious sea turtles yeah on the 
Gulfstream or whatever the equivalent is in the Pacific. Yeah. And then suddenly she's like st- stopping off at the aquarium. And you're like, well, that's kind of not what Nemo was supposed to be. Oh, ne- Nemo is supposed to be a film about your smallness in a giant world. And suddenly you've just made the whole thing feel really, really, really sort of manageable. Well, I think, uh, yeah, look, I think they do actually make it clear they've had to travel that way with the turtles. But you're right, this is less of a road movie than the first one, certainly, if that can be applied to underwater with a complete lack of roads. Um, Interesting fact. So uh, Andrew Sutton at the junket for this, which I was at in Monterey, California, which is the um, aquarium that this is based on, uh, talked about there was a Disney ride when he was growing up in like the 60s, 70s, uh, and it was a sort of a submarine adventure. And this submarine adventure basically took in all the stops in Finding Nemo. <laughs> and he didn't realise this. Um, basically, after the success of Finding Nemo, they came to him and said, we're thinking of reviving this ride. Um, and it used to have a bit with, you know, a shipwreck and a bit with an anglerfish and a bit with a jellyfish for- forest and a bit with some sharks. And he's a bit like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Just plagiarised I've plagiarised my own childhood memories without realising that that's what I was doing. Um Anyway, so I feel like he... Yeah, that was very much the journey of the first film. It was kind of a road movie through the sea. But in this one, to its credit, uh, while they dispense with a lot of the travel time, they still meet a bizarre cast of characters. They still have these, you know, eccentric people that they meet. In particular, um, uh, Ed O'Neill's octopus, Hank, who was fantastic. I loved him. Septopus, I think, actually. He's lost a leg. Um, <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, but his, his penchant for, uh, for camouflage is one of the funniest visual gags, I think, in, in a Pixar film in ages, and I absolutely loved him. He's a classic sort of curmudgeonly character, and paired with the relentlessly sunny Dory, they just make a wonderful odd couple, an absolutely wonderful pairing. It is it's kind of a prison movie, isn't it? And he's the old, the classic old <laughs> lag. Yes, he uh, is the Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah, he's red. Um, yeah, yeah uh, it, it just I, for me it wasn't quite as inspired as as you, you obviously always think about the original when you have a sequel. That's the, mm. that's the that's the sort of cross they have to bear. But um, it wasn't quite as inspired and fresh feeling as. And I think the, the first half was reasonably strong. I think the final third for me. Not so much. But I may be slightly in a minority on that. I'm not sure. No, no, I don't think you are. I think it's fair. I, I don't, I, it's nowhere. It's not a patch on the, on the first film. I also I think... But the first film is a nailed-on classic, yes, let's be it's, clear. it's a phenomenal five-star film. I think this one, the, a lot of the humour didn't really land for me. I really enjoyed a particular Sigourney Weaver gag. I thought that was very that nice. Was, it's one of the cameos of the year. Yep, it's amazing. That's genius. And I especially liked uh, Idris Elba and Dominic West as yes. a pair of sea lions. Uh, <laughs> and I can't help wondering if Idris Elba is sending himself up based on our impersonations of him on this very podcast, because all he really does in that role is bellow someone's first name over and over again. Like, Gerald! <laughs> Gerald! Gerald! <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly that. But it, That's really funny. A, a lot of the rest of it kind of left me unamused and a little bit bored How dare if you. I'm honest with you I just it really didn't land with me at all there are some quite dark moments in this uh, it, one in particular involving a bucket of dead fish which I actually was a little uncomfortable with oh I thought that was funny uh, yeah but it's funny when you're our age when you're a small child <laughs> it's really really you know that's kind of childhood trauma fodder I, I, th- I th- the, the bit that kind of worried me is uh, I don't want to give away too much but the film opens with a scene of a sort of flashback scene of Dory with her parents and her parents 
absolutely desperate to ensure that she will be safe despite her disability, despite the fact that she she has a very unreliable memory and sort of trying to train her with mnemonics and with sort of repeated games and this kind of thing. So she will, you know, be able to to get home safe, be able to avoid danger, be able to, you know, just just live. Um, And I find that really upsetting because you know that they're going to fail. You know that she gets lost. Um, And... Uh, and I guess the only the only sort of comfort is that you also know that she's going to be okay because you've seen the future, so you kind of have to trust in that. But I don't know. I I think yeah. I don't think this is as good as Finding Nemo, but then I think that's true of ninety nine point nine percent of films that have ever mm-hmm. been made. Um, and I think while it's not one of Pixar, I think there have been cases where Pixar has made a sequel better than the original, but they've all had the word Toy Story in them. Yeah. Um, and I think that. They're struggling now to outdo their originals, which is a credit in many ways to their original stories. Um, but I think it's a good thing that they are moving away from sequels in the future. They've already announced that they're going to have more original mm. filmmaking coming out, which I think is a good thing. Um, but but this one, I still think, is worthy of a place on the shelf next to Finding Nemo. I think it is uh, a lovely story. I think Dory herself... she's a character that a lot of people said to me when this was coming out. They're like, oh, I didn't like her in the first one. And they thought that to have more of her you know from her to go for her to go from a, a supporting character yeah. to lead wouldn't exactly work that. but I actually quite enjoyed her I, I liked her more than I thought I would and I think they've they've hit a really nice balance in this film of when the stakes get very high and she's focused on a goal as she gets closer to that goal she starts to remember more so you have more of that kind of emotional connection with her because I think if she was forgetting things too much mm. then it would be frustrating and you would get angry with her as the audience you'd be like oh just rem- I need you to remember now this matters let's get there um, and I think they, they kind of walk that line pretty well actually um, so I enjoyed it and lest we forget young Dory is perhaps the cutest thing that's ever graced the screen yeah she's super cute so go see that go see it for that alone so that is another four star film this is a good week for cinema and I think that is it for this week's Empire Podcast uh, join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by Baz Luhrmann to talk about his blindingly cool new Netflix show and we're, we're still advertising them uh, The Get Down I've seen one episode and I freaking loved it and on that hip hop note it's a goodbye from Phil goodbye goodbye from James goodbye and remember for a month's free trial of Netflix go to now <laughs> and it's goodbye from me I am off to tr- start putting people into category one two and three other categories are available are they no okay